0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Cheap Success or Self-Surrender. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 21st, 2012. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Parker Palmer tells how he was offered the presidency of a small educational institution. He wanted that job, and he thought he should take it. Nevertheless, given his Quaker tradition, he assembled what's called a clearness committee of a half-dozen trusted friends. Their job wasn't to give advice, but to ask honest, open-ended questions so that Palmer could discern his vocational call for himself. Halfway through this three-hour meeting, a friend asked Palmer what he would like most about being president. He mentioned several things he would not enjoy, like wearing a tie, at which his friend gently pointed out that he wasn't answering the question. Palmer paused, thought a bit, and then he writes in his book, I gave an answer that appalled even me as I spoke it. Well, I said in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word President under it. He then concludes, I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. They didn't laugh at all, but went into a long and serious silence. A silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up. And it cracked me open. Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? By then it was obvious even to me that my desire to be president had much more to do with my ego than with the ecology of my life. And so the Clearness Committee had made things clear, and Palmer withdrew his name from the search. Parker Palmer isn't alone. He's just more honest than most of us and may be more in touch with his true self. When John Cassian surveyed monastic life way back in the 5th century, one of the things he noted was clerical ambition cloaked as pious pretense. Indeed, the grab for glory goes all the way back to this week's Gospel of Mark. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus forewarns his disciples three separate times about his destiny at the hands of the political powers and raucous mobs in Jerusalem. Betrayal, mockery, condemnation, suffering, violent execution, but then resurrection. Despite knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, Jesus was resolute. We read, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Right after each of these three passion predictions, the disciples responded to Jesus with objections. After walking with him for three years, they still badly misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After his first prediction, Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. After his second prediction, the disciples argued about who was the greatest. And then, after the third prediction in the Gospel for this week, in her power grab of remarkable audacity, presumption, and exaggerated self importance, James and John asked Jesus, Do for us whatever we ask. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. <clears throat> the other ten disciples promptly implicated their own selves by indignantly protesting. They feared that James and John might gain some advantage over them. Matthew's parallel account of this story includes a delicious detail, that it was actually the mother of James and John who made this brazen request. (coughs) They objected to Jesus' self-sacrifice in Jerusalem, they argued about who among them was the greatest. They failed to heal a little boy, but then tried to stop an anonymous healer who wasn't part of them. When they passed through a Samaritan village and the people didn't welcome them, they wanted to call down hellfire on them. And now they ask for seats of glory in the afterlife. Jesus responded by resorting to irony. Their request for greatness, glory, and power, he said, mimicked the petty Roman overlords who oppressed the Jews with taxes, who exploited them, and who would execute Jesus in a few days. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Rome's political power brokers, whom the disciples imitated, were the same people they despised and resented. Jesus reversed and subverted this common pattern of human behavior. Genuine human greatness, he says, isn't characterized by a domineering spirit, political power, Schemes to control and subjugate people for your own advantage, or the egotistical grasp for glory. Rather, it's characterized by self sacrificial service to others. In theory, we believe this, though our practices belie us. His own life, death, teaching, and resurrection were an extended demonstration of the true nature of human greatness. Mark 10, 45. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Russian poet and novelist Boris Pasternak was born into a wealthy Jewish family, but baptized into the Russian Orthodox faith by his nanny. At first he supported the Russian Revolution, but later he lost his faith in atheist totalitarianism. Pasternak came to symbolize the radical dissident's defense of human conscience. His poem, To Be Famous, encourages a certain sort of greatness, that which is done in quiet anonymity. That's where true history happens, not among the elite or the famous. Listen to Pasternak's poem, To Be Famous. Creation calls for self-surrender, not loud noise and cheap success. Life must be lived without full space, lived so that in the final count, we draw unto ourselves love from space. So plunge yourself into obscurity, and conceal there your tracks. But be alive, alive your full share, alive until the end. Many wise people have observed how it's the insecure, fragile ego that seeks to control, dominate, exploit, and manipulate others for its own advantage. Human experience tells us that such efforts are doomed to fail because when they succeed, they destroy others in the process. In the upside-down world of Jesus, only the strongest sense of self a self that neither grovels nor grasps, can resist chasing counterfeit notions of greatness. In imitating Jesus, as far as that is humanly possible, we serve others for their good rather than for our own glory. Her books this week, I turn to a sports biography and memoir. The title is The Big Miss, My Years Coaching Tiger Woods. The author is Hank Haney. New York Crown Archetype, 2012, 262 pages. Hank Haney was Tiger Woods' swing coach for six years from 2004 to 2010. Along with Tiger's agent, Mark Steinberg, and caddy Steve Williams, he was one of the three people closest to the legendary golfer. Although one of the sad truths in this memoir is that nobody was close to Tiger Woods. As his coach, Hank Haney stayed at Tiger Woods' home for about 30 days every year. He was with him about 110 days a year at tournaments. He was present at his wedding, took ski trips with the family, and played 150 practice rounds of golf with Tiger. So this is an insider account about the human being who's fallen farther faster than anyone else in history. Life around Tiger Woods was always awkward for everyone including his former wife, Helene. No one was spared the treatment. Haney writes, there were never any substantive life conversations between us. Woods, an only child, was always a loner, emotionally detached, even with his good friend Mark O'Meara. He played by his own set of rules, was self-centered, a terrible tipper, and was always business and no small talk. So what is the real Tiger Woods like? Haney says that's the least satisfactorily answered sports question of the last 20 years, because even those closest to him don't know. Golf nuts will love reading about the technicalities of the game and about a coach instructing the greatest golfer ever on how to improve like the the nine-shots drill, based upon the nine ways a golf shot could be sculpted according to three curves, left, center, right, and three trajectories, low, medium, high. Tiger would hit all nine shots with each and every club. For me, the more interesting story was Tiger the person rather than the player. Why the catastrophic meltdown? Heaney takes his share of responsibility. He writes, I was one of his enablers. I never challenged Tiger to become a better human being. His best explanation makes at least some sense, that to be successful at that level requires an absolute obsession that ignores everyone and everything else in your life. In this sense, Hank Haney's book reminded me of Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs and the wisecrack of a friend at Stanford who once said that behind every great man lies a trail of human wreckage. Beyond these two storylines of great gulf and personal tragedy, Haney's book is also an exercise in self-justification to set the story straight on three controversial matters. First, he insists that he never knew about Tiger's sexcapades, nor in his view did caddy Steve Williams. Second, he wants us to know that he quit as Tiger's coach and was not fired. Finally, at the end of the book, he rebuts the many criticisms he took for remaking Tiger Woods' game by showing that Woods won more tournaments under him than he did under his previous coach, Butch Harmon. In fact, doubters can consult his chart at the end of the book. Tiger Woods' worldwide performance record while Hank Haney was his coach, March 2004 to May 2010. So there. Hank Haney, The Big Miss. My years coaching Tiger Woods. For movies this week, we go to the country of Indonesia in a film called Mysterious Mambaramo from the year 2001. Talk about adventure travel to extreme environments. Filmmaker Pavel Barabas follows two friends, photographer Lako Gulik and mountain climber Jindro Martis, whose goal is to be the first people in the world to film the Mambaramo tribe that lives deep in the jungles of New Guinea, untouched by human civilization. That's a tall order, because access to Indonesia's 250 indigenous groups is strictly prohibited by the government. Even though they had permits, and nearly impossible because of the terrain. This story is far more about the journey, which took five weeks and covered 600 miles, rather than the destination, which actually only figures in the last 10 minutes of this one-hour film. With the help of native porters, the intrepid explorers brave thick tropical forests, steep gorges, torrential rains, bamboo bridges, river crocodiles, and the dreaded malaria. Along the way, they befriend numerous villages and people, most of whom have heard about white people but never seen them. They observe their traditions of family, weddings, funerals, war, music, food, and, yes, cannibalism. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Mysterious Mambaramo. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien lived from 1892 to 1973. The title of the poem, All Ye Joyful Sing, All Ye Joyful, now sing all together. The wind's in the treetop, the wind's in the heather. The stars are in blossom, the moon is in flower, and bright are the windows of night in her tower. Dance, all ye joyful, now dance all together. Soft is the grass, and let foot be like feather. The river is silver, the shadows are fleeting. Merry is maytime, and merry are meeting. Sigh no more pine till the wind of the morn. Fall moon, Dark be the land, hush, hush, oak, ash, and thorn, hushed by all water, till dawn is at hand. J.R.R. Tolkien, All Ye Joyful. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 21st, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.